For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Before we get started, a few words from our sponsors. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by the good folks at Scott Fly Rods. From a fly shop owner standpoint, Scott has stayed true to specialty retail. And you're not going to find these rods at every shop you go to, only the best of the best. This is Mike Schultz, smallmouth bass guru and owner of Schultz Outfitters in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He told me why he carries and trusts Scott Fly Rods. It's just kind of like what I'm kind of seeing going on in the industry and a lot of these new kind of pop-up companies that, that get big really fast and, you know, social media blows them up. You know, Scott Fly Rods is one of the last companies to make all their fly rods in the United States from start to finish. So many companies these are building off prefabricated blanks while charging a premium price. You don't see that with Scott, and I doubt you ever will. To get one of these handcrafted in America works of art, visit your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Okay, on to the show. Welcome back, folks. If you tuned into the last episode, you heard about Lucas Griffin and his band of BTT cronies as we went and chased Tarpon in the Florida Keys. After my time with them in the Keys, I had to make my way a bit further north on the Florida coast. But to get there, I had to meet up with an old friend. This is Clyde. He had spent the winter basking in the tropical heat of the Florida Keys, and it was time for him to follow the birds and migrate north. Though I hadn't seen him in over a year, few things have changed. His radio is still subpar, but his 460 cubic inch engine is good as new, and his appetite for a quart of oil every 100 miles is all but insatiable. Now that the band was back together, it was time to head north. Cause I'm crazy about a But first, we had to make it out of the gated community that Clyde had somehow made it in in the first place. How's it going? Doing great. Good, good. Where are you coming from? What address? Uh, oh man, Harold and Mona Brewer. I had to hand over my ID to even leave the place. And this car is finally leaving once and for all. You'll never <laughs> no see it again. <laughs> We hit the open road while listening to the finest AM radio that Southern Florida has to offer. Four hours later, I found myself on the bow of a polling skiff. Test, test. Cool. You got a pocket available? Yep. Uh, I'd have to look. This is Larry Luttrell. He sports an impressive ponytail and a lumberjack-esque beard that makes all the southern bells go wild. By day, he works in commercial construction quality control testing and consulting, his words, not mine, out of Orlando. But as soon as the clock hits 5 p.m. on Friday, you can find him on the waters of Mosquito Lagoon. All right, so what what is your experience level in this, like, 
salty. Almost none. Okay. Yeah, All right. Probably. Most of our shots are going to be about 40 feet. Okay, cool. So my advice is minimal number of false casts. Mosquito Lagoon sits on Florida's east coast, about an hour's drive from Orlando. And it's a super unique area. Just a three-minute boat ride from the put-in, and you're in the middle of nowhere with zero signs of development. And there are lots of fish that call Mosquito Lagoon home. These okay. fish are super highly pressured. Yeah. Uh, just because of how close we are to Orlando, a lot of people fish out here. These fish are super acutely aware of birds being the source of their demise. So anything overhead spooks the shit out of them. Right. So one false cast and delivered at 40 feet, that's probably gonna be your best deal. You keep the fly line in the air too long, You're gonna we're gonna be blowing okay. fish out. Sounds good. All right. And Larry had agreed to pull me around the lagoon in search of one of his favorite species. There's a redfish right on the corner. See him right there? Just come sliding off that bank. The mighty redfish. Redfish are one of the most sought after game fish, known for their choosiness and aggressive fight. So today, while we search for tailors on the semi-salty waters of Mosquito Lagoon, we'll learn what gives redfish their reputation. But we'll also hear what's threatening this species and the lagoon as a whole. By the end of this episode, we'll also have to ask what the future has in store for all of our coastal fisheries. Stick around. And all this water is what, 12 inches deep? Yeah, eight, 12 inches. There's spots we won't even be able to get through in this, and this boat probably drafts about five inches. We searched for tails as Larry pulled me through the shallows of the lagoon, but I got caught up staring at the mangroves covering the shoreline and the bait skittering in front of the boat. There's something at the very far end of the bay that keeps drawing my attention on the right-hand shoreline where it, where it narrows up. Looks like it might be a fish working down there. Oh, that's, that's a mullet. I see it now. Even when we weren't targeting these fish for bait, the song still ran through my head like the earworm that it is. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mangroves look pretty healthy. They are. Um, there are some shorelines where a lot of them got uprooted that were, you know, on the windward side of the storm. And actually, if you look, Right there at 2, 3 o'clock. See the mangrove on the shoreline? 2, 3 o'clock, keep coming around right. See how the roots are uprooted right there? And once Larry started pointing out some of the damage, I noticed that the whole place seemed to still be recovering from some sort of recent destruction. See the crab float over there on the tree? Float yeah, from yeah. a crab trap? Oh, it's a crab trap. See where the rope is up in that mangrove? Yeah. How far up the rope is? That's from Irma. Like we had tons of water in here during oh. Irma. So the water was super high and that got broken loose from a crab trap and got wrapped up in that tree and that's just the buoy hanging down now. And all of this damage and refuse was left by Hurricane Irma, which ripped through this area less than nine months ago. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Jeff Glore in St. Pete Beach, Florida, with the latest on Hurricane Irma. 
Good morning. This powerful Category 4 hurricane is just really beginning to batter this state with maximum sustained winds of 130 miles an hour. There's a very wide storm. Hurricane or tropical storm force winds extend uh, about 220 miles from the center. Irma is already blamed for three deaths here in Florida after killing more than two dozen as it tore across the Caribbean last week. You know, I waited about a month before I went out because there was just so much debris from docks and stuff that I didn't want to come out here and run around and find the dock that was submerged by six inches. But there was a lot of stuff out here for sure. Chunks of docks and pallets lined the seafloor. Just the previous few days in the Keys, I had seen what damage it had done down there. But I wondered how this area and how the fishery had fared following the storm. How healthy is this ecosystem? It's very unhealthy right now. And the causes of the lagoon's lackluster health go back decades, centuries even. And to learn a little more about this history and how the lagoon has changed over time, I called up this gentleman. Dwayne DeFries. I'm the executive director of the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program. Elliot, I'm talking to you from the small beach town, central Florida. You know, we're bounded to my east by the Atlantic Ocean and just a few blocks to my west, uh, the Indian River Lagoon. Being born with the name befitting of a superhero or a supervillain, Dr. DeFries had to make a difficult choice early on in his life. Dark or light? Sith or Jedi? Evil or good? Thankfully, Dr. DeFries has chosen to use his powers to work on the issues surrounding water quality in the whole of the Indian River Lagoon, of which Mosquito Lagoon comprises the northernmost section. And we are focusing on restoration on this very large lagoon. We're almost 40% of the east coast of Florida. Could you start with the first signs of trouble that the Indian River Lagoon experienced in the 20s, there was an effort to control mosquitoes, and they used to hand dig these ditches, trying to control the mosquito breeding in the marshes. And they did this by trying to decrease the amount of standing water where mosquitoes reproduce. It wasn't very effective. In the 1930s, they began to what we call impound our salt marshes, and which means that you really dig a channel and build a dike around that marsh, completely separate it from the waters of the lagoon. Everyone who fishes knows how important our wetlands are to fisheries, especially as habitat and nursery. In addition to destroying fish habitat, the marsh impoundments had another negative side effect, which Larry explained. What it essentially did is it removed all this salt marsh from being able to naturally filter the lagoon. Because as the water went into the marshes, the land and structure there would kind of clean the water before it re-entered the lagoon. I mean, think of this place as a big aquarium, you know? If your aquarium doesn't have the right filter, it's always dirty. You're always behind the eight ball. But even with all this going on, the populations of redfish, sea trout, and other game fish were still pretty healthy. Back to Dr. DeFries. By the mid-40s, the shift was to chemicals. And the chemical of choice in the 40s was DDT and other pesticides. Remember the name, Pestroy DDT. Used right, it is absolutely harmless to humans and animals. But to insects, it is deadly. But in the mid-50s, they started to see pesticide resistance. 
And with the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, people began realizing that DDT was actually harmful to animals. And while all of this took a toll on the fishery, the fishing in Mosquito Lagoon was still pretty good back then. I remember what the fishing was like in 1978 when I got here. You know, I could go out and get a bushel of clams in less than 20 minutes. And I remember, you know, catching so many spotted sea trout, even on a fly rod, you know, doing catch and release that you'd stop just because your arm was so tired. And the fishing continued to get better even after the 70s, in part because the state began removing those impoundments that had drained so much of the marshes. Today, I'd say about 80% of those impoundment systems have been reconnected. But there were warning signs that something might be changing in the lagoon. And we also saw this collapsing filter feeder. So clams and oysters, we lost like 80% of that commercial fishery. And, and some of that was harvest issues, and some of it was subtle water quality changes. And as Larry explained, Believe it or not, a single adult oyster on one of these oyster bars up here can filter 50 gallons of water a day. It's crazy. I fact-checked this claim, and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, cites this number as well. And we've lost a lot of that. And there were further signs of distress coming from the lagoon. One of those hints was that we were seeing our seagrass beds, you know, a little less dense early on. We didn't know what that meant at the time. And in the late aughts, the problems really began to pile up. In 2008, we had Tropical Storm Bay that dumped 26 inches of water, large inputs of storm water. So that was a big shock. Following that, in 2009 and 2010, in the winter, we had December really hard freezes that actually killed off some of that macroalgae. Released a whole lot of nitrates and phosphates, and we've got this really huge load of nutrients in the water. And in 2011, we had a what we are now calling the super bloom. Uh, we are now in recurring algal blooms almost every season. And like you see the water's kind of off color. Normally this would be gin clear. Most scientists believe that we had one of those perfect storms in 2011. Back on the water, Larry continued to pull me around, where I continued to mistake bait fish for redfish. We see. There's some bait right up tight that's moving along, pushing that little small weight. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything from up here, and I got a pretty good view. What am I looking for now? Am I looking for tails? It would be awesome if we see some tails. Probably more than likely we're not going to see tails, but we'll see fish that'll be cruising these banks. And once we see a fish, I'm going to call the fish out to you. It's not me saying, hey, cast at it. It's just saying, hey, look, you see it at 2 o'clock, 5 feet off the bank, going from right to left. Take a look. Don't be shy about saying I don't see it. I might ask you to point to 2 o'clock, and then I'll adjust, you know, left, 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 right, right, right. Okay, there it is. Once you see it, we'll position the boat so that you have a cast. Or if, if already a situation where it looks like you should be able to get a cast off, no problem. I'm just going to say, you see the fish, yep, take it, and it's all up to you. I'm not going to tell you when to cast or anything like that. 
So we gotta take a quick break here, but when we come back, we might even find a redfish. Stick around. This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by the fine folks at the Appalachian Mountain Club's main wilderness lodges. It is kind of a well-kept, wonderful secret. This is Katie Yakubowski, the programs manager for the three wilderness lodges in Maine. And she wants to share this secret with you. It's great. We have mountains, we have ponds, everything from waterfalls to rivers. Go fishing, go canoeing, go hiking to see beautiful mountain views really the perfect place to learn how to fly fish and also just be able to catch a fish. (laughs) A wild native brook trout nonetheless. So we have a little bit of everything. For your summer vacation, why not book a cabin, catch some fish, and relax with the family? The Maine Wilderness Lodges are waiting for you. For more information, visit outdoors.org forward slash drake. We're also sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Hi, I'm John Hudgens. I work with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures as the South American Program Director. While Yellow Dog has operations all around the world, they also have specific individuals who specialize in each area. Meaning that when you call them up hoping to book a trip, you'll be hooked up with the best person to answer your questions. Say, about South America. We work with fisheries in Venezuela, Bolivia, Brazil, Guyana, Argentina, and Chile. So we cover anything from Sea Run Browns, Resident Rainbows and Golden Dorado, Paku, Peacock Bass, Arapaima, Tarpon, Permit, and Bonefish. If you're interested in any of these places or species, or really any place or species in the world, drop the folks at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures a line. Check them out at yellowdogflyfishing.com. Okay, back to the show. The rhythmic pulse of the boat tempted to lull me to sleep, but I was still on the lookout for fish, throwing an occasional exploratory cast from time to time. That fly is a little bit of a slow sinker, so keep that in mind. These fish, you'll probably want to lead them by foot, foot and a half. Let it sink, and as they're getting to it, not a whole lot of movement, just like a tick, tick, tick. Just bump it, read the fish. If the fish looks like he's reacting to it positively, maybe one more bump to give them that feeling that it's getting away. While I practiced strip sets on non-existent fish, the conversation led back to the ecosystem. And while the problems of filtration and oysters and the freeze may have been building for years, there's another variable that is arguably the biggest culprit in the destruction of the lagoon. But the other really even bigger impact of the lagoon was just the massive human population growth. Again, Dr. DeFries. You know, so we are 1.6 million residents, and so stormwater is a big problem for the lagoon. Imagine that. We're the problem. For example, every time it rains, all the oil and gas on the road gets washed into the lagoon. The aging sewer systems and wastewater treatment facilities in the area dump water that's less than clean into the lagoon. And the 300,000 septic systems in the area have to have a few leaks in them. All of those are human impacts that are impacting our water quality, both from a nutrient standpoint and a pollutant load standpoint. So they all contribute to some of the challenges we're facing today. And of course, the problems don't end there. The algae blooms are muddying the water, which doesn't allow enough sunlight to make it to the ocean floor where the seagrasses live, leading to... Uh, We've seen 60% or more loss of seagrasses 
which just further adds to the problems of water quality, which affects this center of balance that the lagoon is so far from. And I want to emphasize how important water quality is to this area. Because the lagoon is only connected to the ocean in a few small spots, there is little exchange of water between the open sea and Mosquito Lagoon. Meaning, what goes in the lagoon, pollution, fresh water, very often stays in the lagoon. So we're really vulnerable to human impacts. To understand how all of these issues affect the fish, I called up someone who is on the water just about every day and depends on it for his livelihood. My name is Justin Price. I'm a fly fishing guide in Mosquito Lagoon. My website is rightinsightcharters.com. So when did you start guiding on Mosquito Lagoon? Uh, 2009. So coming up on nine years now this year. When I started, no, I mean, it was healthy. You know, it was, you know, even when we had the first couple of algae blooms, the first few years of it, the, the grass hadn't taken a hit yet. So it was amazing. And how about now? What's, what's the fishing looking like these days? More people fishing for less fish. It's been a struggle over the past few years, and it's kind of hard to promote your business in a place that's getting a reputation for what's been going on. But we're still out here catching fish. Larry and I talked about some local guides not being willing to like acknowledge the decline of the lagoon. And what do you attribute that to? I think deep down inside they do know. I think they're afraid to voice it because they're afraid that they're going to lose the business. Um, I think that's what's helped me along the way with, with the fly fishing aspect is because if you co- we cover enough water, we move around enough, we're going to get our shots at fish. Whereas the spin fishing guides... They can't catch fish fast enough for clients. And, and if you have less numbers and you're, you have that aggressive approach and you're charging it and going spot to spot to spot, you're just not producing, those clients are going to feel that. You know, the fly fishing, it's a slower mentality, if that makes any sense. Pull enough shorelines. And, I mean, we find our fish and we get our shots. It's two different ways of looking at it. And I think those guys are the ones that are really going to be hurt if they start voicing their opinions on it. You know, so they still have to try to sell their business, which in a way it's kind of tough, like false hope. We'll hear more from Justin at the end of the episode when he gives us a current fishing report. But for now, let's get back to the issue at hand, fishing. I've definitely seen a difference in the number of fish. There's a redfish right on the corner. See him right there? Just come sliding off that bank. And there it was, maybe 15 feet off the bow which of course was much too easy of a cast for me to not mess up. Get a little bit closer to him. Here you go, a little back cast. The second cast was a little better, but still no reaction from the fish. It's okay, finish the cast. He's got his head down, you're fine. All right, leave that there. Rod tip back towards me, all the way back towards me. Strip, 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 leave it. And I just want to make it clear that even with all the bad things going on in Mosquito Lagoon... Strip. All right. Give another shot. He kind of knows we're here, but he's not panicking. All right, strip, 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 strip. Leave it. Strip. The fish are still there. Oh, not that hard. Not that hard. Not that hard. Not that hard. He ate it, you took it. Even if you can't catch him. Good job staying with him, though. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do? He turned around and came back to it. I saw his gills flare. I saw the fly go in his mouth. And you did the 
Hercules strip set, which can work, but in that case, they just took it away from him. That's okay. okay. And honestly, you could have probably waited and you would have felt him. And then it's just a matter of almost holding it tight and just look, a little, just a little pop. Just a little boop. Once, okay. once you feel the tension, cool, just cool. a little boop. Well, if I had money, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd go downtown by a mercury or two. I'm crazy about a mercury. Lord, I'm crazy about a mercury. I'm gonna buy me a mercury and cruise it up and down the road. Despite the focus on the negatives of Mosquito Lagoon, Dr. DeFries told me about the efforts they've undertaken to help rehabilitate the area. More than a billion dollars is going to be needed, you know, to fix this system. Which is a huge ask, but there is reason to believe that they might actually achieve this lofty fundraising goal. And probably the best example is Brevard County. And in Brevard County, the citizens voted for a half a cent sales tax focused exclusively on Indian River Lagoon restoration. And that sales tax is going to deliver about $40 million a year for the next 10 years for lagoon restoration. So I'm hopeful, I'm excited, but we have a lot of work ahead. You know, it's Florida and, you know, we love our fishing and we love our clean water. Tourism depends on it, but so does our economy. And, you know, if we protect clean water, we protect a resource that's valued at 7.6 billion dollars a year. So when I tell you that, you know, we're looking at over a billion dollars to restore, you know, the first reaction is, well, wow, that's a lot of money. How do we afford it? But the real answer is we can't not afford it. We can't not make that investment because that billion dollar investment is protecting a $7.6 billion annual resource to the regional economy. But even if that $1 billion is invested, there's another issue that we haven't yet addressed, which actually looms over all conservation projects across the world. And climate change is another level of complexity for us. As seasons change, rainfall patterns are changing, salinity is changing, uh, we know we're having ocean acidification, so pH is changing. And when you start shifting salinity, pH, and temperature, it's hard to predict where these very fragile coastal systems go. And so that just makes our job of restoration even harder, is that we need to look at these external factors that we never considered before. Um, and this is the beginning of a changing system that we're not going to be able to control. So sea level rise is going to happen no matter what we do. And that's going to change the character of every estuary in North America, which will also change the fishery characteristics in ways that are difficult to predict. I had a few more fish eat during the next couple of hours, but couldn't get anything to come tight. Thankfully, folks like Larry Luttrell and Justin Price are out there figuring out how to put people like me onto fish. On a brighter note, how's the fishing been lately? What are you catching? Uh, what species? Uh, it's kind of like a 
transitional period. You know, we came out of winter fairly quick, and, you know, for us here, it's, you know, spring. You know, our main targets right now are snook around structure, and they'll start moving into the shallows, but redfish, sea trout, large sea trout, and uh, black drum. And then we're starting to get our migratory fish moving through, you know, your jacks, bluefish, and we're starting to see some uh, activity out on the tarpon. You know, starting to cooperate a little bit, and then we'll, the redfish and then sea trout keep us pretty busy year-round. Coming out yesterday, water was cooler with from all the rain, and uh, fish were very active. But it was cloudy, so it would tail for a second, and then you'd lose them. And you know, when the water levels came up, it also allowed them to push up in areas where they hadn't been feeding um, for a couple of weeks, honestly, because the water dropped out pretty good. They were able to reach a lot of the shorelines and the grass. And, so they were in new feeding grounds, basically. We had a lot of shots, a lot of fish. Here's a great clip of audio that Justin shared with me of one of his buddies trying to land a fish. There you go. Oh! You broke me off. You broke, you me broke off. him off. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> for the average person, for me, it's not used to it. And the way the fish were popping up and only giving us seconds to react to it made it really tough for those guys. Uh, somebody like Buddy's Mine that fished those fish a lot can react very fast to them and load the rod quick. Let the guide guide you and you have to listen. You know, a lot of people, you know, they take experiences from other places and when they come here and it's a different fishery and we know our fish. So you have to allow us to, you know, coach you through it. And then the biggest part too is trying to get people relaxed enough. You know, sometimes it gets the best of them and they fall apart, you know, when it counts. So. so that's all we got this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. A huge thanks to Dr. DeFries and Captain Justin Price for chatting with me about these issues. You can find out more about the doc and his work at IRLcouncil.org. And follow the captain on the old Instagram, handle at C-A-P-T-Justin underscore Price. If you're going to be in the area, give him a call. He'll put you on fish. You can find links to all of this information on our website, drakemag.com. And finally, a huge thanks to Larry Luttrell for showing me the lagoon and putting me up for the night. To listen to more of his concerns and thoughts and ramblings, check out the podcast that he does with some of his fishy friends. It's called Taylor Trash Fly Fishing. Not trailer, but tailor, like a tailing redfish. They get into some fun antics, and I actually join them for an episode. You can find Larry and Taylor Trash Fly Fishing wherever you find podcasts. So next week, Clyde and I take a trip further north while still staying in the southeast. This time, we're going to be looking for stripers. Keep your eyes peeled. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. Daddy's really never away. Oh, oh, Tell me about the good old days.